Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we investigate whose versions of history we might be caught up in. Today I'm joined by two scholars who are also yoga practitioners, Anya Foxen and Krista Kubery. They're co-authors of a book with a fascinating title, Is This Yoga? Well, we start by unpacking what that means. And uh, to oversimplify massively, what we know today as yoga is in many ways the union of Indian tradition with Western esotericism. But what lies behind all that? Uh, can anything be yoga? Or does everything crumble to dust if you analyse it hard enough? <laughs> well, as we discuss, the answer's somewhere in between. <laughs> we also touch along the way on a range of other topics, um, like whether some classes ought to be rebranded, and how you build a dating app based on Western and Vedic astrology. <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, just quickly, though, if you'd like to support the podcast as a subscriber, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. And to explore my online courses on texts and traditions, visit truthofyoga.com. But for now, let's dive into this chat about where modern yoga comes from with Anya Foxen and Krista Kubri. So welcome, Anya, Krista. Lovely to be chatting to you. I've just been uh, reading your book, um, has this wonderful title is this yoga and uh, I keep wanting an answer but you you unfortunately uh, make it very difficult to get my hands on one so I'm, yep. I'm hoping we can we can try and pin a few things down together today um first of all I just love to uh, to hear from you both a little bit about why you chose to title your book with a question mark at the end of it <laughs> Krista yeah. do you want to tell the story sure yeah I mean I think there's there's two two really trains of thought. There's the serious scholarly one, because I think when we were writing the book, we were initially going to call it, this is yoga. And mm. on our first peer review, a very erudite scholar <laughs> pointed out that is, I mean, can you really claim that all of this is yoga? Uh, and then on a more playful note, and, and probably the more real reason that we changed the title, uh, Anya's husband, Brooks, uh, is very flexible. And so he just kept busting out rather in, incredible postures and being like, is this yoga? And so it became a very uh, useful sort of tool for us when we were thinking about these very complex histories and concepts and what's going on today. Yeah. And kind of our whole point was that, you know, yoga has never been this monolithic thing 
Um, there's yeah. always been diversity within the tradition, right? There's always been this question actually of is this yoga? Um, and so it really felt appropriate by the end of it to title the book, you know, something a little bit more open. Yeah, I mean, and in the train, oh, go ahead. Go, no, no, please, please, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, in the train of like historian Jay-Z Smith, it's very much like, uh, I think we took it seriously that this was our our chance to both complexify and complicate the question while we did some really serious research and looking at at the whole history of yoga and at how these concepts came about. Well, I, I started to question whether it could actually become a mantra um, in some kind of a way. I mean, it's a, an aid to inquiry. And um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the whole idea that we can pin anything down about yoga is <laughs> you know, complicated, let's say. Um, and uh, the idea that anything is fixed is, is not very helpful as well. I mean, everything has to change unless we're in the mm-hmm. transcendent. And so <laughs> yeah, constantly asking ourselves, is this yoga, is probably quite a helpful heuristic for getting on with the practice. Rather than deluding ourselves that we got there already. Yeah, no, I think so. I think so. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's there's an image that you have on the cover, which um, I think gets unpacked later on. And it's uh, a metaphor that I heard Anya talk about um, a few years ago now at the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies about lotuses and water lilies. And I'm not actually sure, are these lotuses or water lilies on the cover? (laughs) I think that's part of the question, really. Um, But uh, just to sort of clarify for for those listening, yeah, yoga is similar to lots of other things um, in lots of interesting ways, particularly um, systems of practice and philosophy in the Western world that uh, have become entangled with yoga to the point that it's it's very difficult to untangle them. And uh, the, the metaphor being that if you stick a bunch of lotuses and water lilies together in a pond, they will entangle themselves. <laughs> you won't be able to prize them apart. And uh, so I, I wondered if you could say a little bit more about how you chanced upon that metaphor and, and and why that helps us to see something a bit more interesting about the question of what is yoga being westerners engaged with a tradition we didn't grow up in yeah well so the original metaphor uh, was krista's actually this came out of her dissertation um she talked about modern yoga as a rhizome right and mm-hmm. for me this was actually i mean i really latched on to that metaphor because i had been coming out of um elizabeth Michaelis's work where she called modern yoga this graft, right, of a Western branch onto sort of the Indian tree of this tradition. And that didn't, I mean, I thought that was a really helpful Mm -hmm. image, but it didn't really kind of seem to me to represent really the the fullness, right, of of this blending and the syncretism that had happened. So I think it was in my first book, maybe, or maybe it was my second, I kind of moved from her metaphor, uh, Demichaelis' metaphor of a graft to something like an inosculation, right, this place where the trunks of two trees have kind of grown so close together that they've become one. And then Krista came along and was like, well, but like, isn't it kind of problematic to uh, even even go with the metaphor of something so solid, right, and so monolithic mm-hmm. um, as the mm-hmm. trunk of a tree? And so um, she, in her dissertation, was talking about um, traditions as, as rhizomes, right, as these things that sort of spread in this web-like fashion that pop up in these different instantiations where it's a different plant, but it's the same plant at the same time. Um, and so I, I think as we were working on this book together, it kind of occurred to me like, oh, like, lo- yeah, lotuses are rhizomes. But so are water lilies. And actually, people do have a really hard time telling them apart. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yep. it sort of it, it, it blossomed out of that. Yes. Oh, very apt. Yeah, exactly. And then the cover was very much, you know, it's looking through a kaleidoscope, which mm-hmm. also, I think, references how, 
you know, yoga has been refracted and seen through so many perspectives, depending upon who's looking at it, where it's being looked at and at what time period. So, you know, also giving an ode to that on top of the, you know, nerdy Deleuzian theoretical rhizome model that I used in my <laughs> dissertation. <laughs> Well, I mean, nerdy might be one way of putting it, but um, actually, I think, you know, this is something that comes up a lot dealing with the world of yoga practice today that that, that is really important. Um, you know, I'm sure we all had the similar experience right at the beginning, starting to inquire, where does yoga come from? What's what's the evolution process? Well, we did assume it descended from some vaguely common point <laughs> that, uh, you know, we could trace some sort of uh, lineage back to. And, um, you know, the reality is that it's so um, difficult to, to untangle these different influences it's actually more helpful to, to suggest that people stop trying to define that that you know mythical origin point yeah. and uh, in, instead to think much more about now and where we are and how we're in the in the web of entanglement <laughs> and the question mm-hmm. is really what are we doing in it and you know how are we relating to some of these strands and which ones are we wanting to tug on and which ones might we try and sever and um, whatever it might be we, we are here in the world in the 21st century we are not living in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra <laughs> so um, no. I, I was wondering caught in Indra's net. <laughs> well, we could be caught in Indra's net. That's a nice <laughs> metaphor. Yeah, yeah. The rhizome, the, the, the uber rhizome, the one, the, one that started the whole process. Um, I wonder, though, now that we are here in this modern Western world and we have got this you know, syncretic jumble of different influences, I mean, if you could say a little bit for those listening who, who might not be very familiar with uh, you know, a lot of what you present in this book, um, which is a very comprehensive guide to you know, the Indian history of yoga, the Western influences that have become entangled with different strands of Indian yoga and some of the you know, concepts through which we can helpfully examine this process of entanglement. Um, but just coming back to you know, absolute basics, what is there in the West and in our own historical tradition that is similar to yoga and how far back does that go well I get, yeah i guess this was this was my little pet project uh, this was my second book where i i mean actually i started from that question right of um, trying to figure out where this stuff in my yoga practice that didn't really seem to be locatable uh in indian traditions came from because i was sort of like it worked Right. So I was convinced that it had to come from somewhere like it couldn't just be this this random stuff. And it really bothered me, you know, when people would call it shallow or people would call it, you know, just the bastardization of some other uh, presumably authentic tradition. Um, So I actually here I was working off of Mark Singleton's work, you know, where he kind of pinpoints uh, these these physical culturalists, specifically women. Uh, in the 19th century that are working with all of these, no, 19th, early 20th, that are working with all these, you know, sort of breath movement practices. And so at first I really thought I was going to write about a book about 19th century women's physical culture. Um, mm. And then I started trying to figure out what are these women doing? Um, and so that was the summer that I had to teach myself Neoplatonism. <laughs> um so I really think the one you can summary. trace it back that far. <laughs> and Latin and Greek. Didn't you teach yourself languages? You taught yourself too? Latin well, and yeah, Greek. I, yeah, I taught myself like baby Latin, right? Like mm-hmm. middle school Latin, which after Sanskrit yeah. is actually very easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you're right there. Probably I'm still struggling with Sanskrit and I struggled with Latin. So it's yeah, mm-hmm. an endless task for me. But um, coming back to that, you know, quite fancy sounding phrase, Neoplatonism. Um, could, could you just unpack that in words of one syllable for people like me who haven't had a classical education? 
Yeah. So um, Neoplatonism is this third century uh, of the common era tradition that it's Neoplatonism, right? Because it's not quite Platonism anymore. So it's not the thought of Plato, uh, which would have, you know, preceded all that stuff by over half of a millennium. Um, but it's, it's interesting to look at um, because these are philosophers and, and mystics practitioners to some extent. Mm. Um, that are building on Plato's thought and the way that, you know, Plato kind of encourages people to think about the ascent of the soul um, to, to some sort of more perfect realm. Um, but they're thinking about it in these really interesting ways that I think are similar to a lot of the stuff that we see in Indian yoga traditions. Um, they tend to look at the world as being sort of all one thing that then kind of emanates out or expands out into the diversity of, of how we perceive reality. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, depending on kind of like which, which figure you look at and, uh, and which path, which thread you follow, um, there's a lot of contemplative practice, but there's also ritual practice, um, you know, again, not the same, but maybe analogous to some of the stuff that we find in Indian yoga traditions. So, yeah, it's basically, I mean, I guess I am certainly not the expert on this, but if I were to boil down Neoplatonism to one sentence, um, it's, a, it's a theory of how the one becomes the many. Um, and so, you know, from the standpoint of, of practices, it's also a theory of how we, starting in the many, can kind of get back to the one. I mean, that is the basic framework for how most people today would explain yoga philosophy if you, you know, pluck them out mm -hmm. of a teacher training. And um, so, so that's, that's, that's a fascinating backdrop. Um, is there any possibility that some of that was influenced from India, do you think? You know, I, I mean, I think I would say it's almost impossible that it wasn't to some extent, mm. uh, but this is why ancient history is tricky, right? Um, and historians have tried to trace out, you know, well, well, how how could, you know, things come over? Maybe we're talking about trade routes. There's there's all this stuff about Alexander the Great, right? And the gymnosophist. Um, I mean, people have these little data points. Um, there's a really great book by Thomas McEvely, I think it is, called The, the Shape, Shape of, of Ancient, ancient Thought. Thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah, where he does a lot of this kind of work. David Gordon White. Um, has also done a lot of it kind of less from the philosophical side and more from actually like the on the ground, you know, like ideas moving. He's very into demonology. So his new book is called Diamonds Are Forever. Um, oh not, not diamonds, right? Like <laughs> no, no, a stone, no, no. but like demons. demons. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think there's there's been some attempts, right, to trace out these possible chains of influence. But also, I just think we're never, you know, it, it, it happened so long ago that... Um, on the one hand, I think we're never going to be able to pin down anything super concrete. But on the other hand, just thinking about how the world works, right? I mean, the ancient world didn't exist in a hermetically sealed bubble any more so than our world does. Again, I think it's almost impossible, right, that some of these ideas didn't drift back and forth. So I think the similarities are more than accidental. And then at the same time, you know, there's also this kind of universal human impulse to try and make sense of things. And you know, we have a body and, you know, we have a mind and we have a, a sense of something bigger than a body and a mind. And some attempt to make those things relate to, to each other is you know, kind of inevitable consequence of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's mm -hmm. striking, you know, how, how that project gets refined in, in very similar ways to what happens with yoga by people who really don't seem to have any engagement with yoga. I mean, you're talking about uh, characters a lot more recently, like Swedenborg mm -hmm. and uh, Henry right. Kling in Sweden. 
Um, but, uh, you know, also as a sort of, uh, you know, middle phase from, from the ancient worlds to that time of, of, of similar projects of trying to integrate and make sense uh -huh. of, of you know, this harmonial relationship between things. I like this uh -huh. phrase harmonialism that you, uh, that you use for that, because that is, again, very analogous to what people think of uh, as yoga. So, so what differentiates it from yoga? Although there's all these obvious overlaps, what's different, uh -huh. do you think? You know, yeah, I mean, I think I think the overall, the overlap, right, the great similarity is that all these things are about the relationship between the parts and the whole, right, the one and the many. Um, but at least to my mind, and maybe Krista can speak to this from, from even a different perspective, uh, it, it seems to me that in the Western systems, um, it is much more about uh, at least the way that things develop, right, especially into the 19th century. Um, it's about kind of almost like balancing, right, and again, like harmonizing, right, this idea of harmony, this idea of kind of these 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 proportions, right, and the way that everything is supposed to kind of uh, uh, form this perfect harmony together. Um, it's about this sort of internal fine-tuning of the thing, um, whereas you find that in yogic traditions as well, um, right. I mean, yoga as, as, you know, something that might mean to yoke um, is very much about kind of how do you, how do you perfectly yoke the organism, right? How do you set up your sort of mind body chariot? Um, but it seems to me that there's, um, uh, gosh, there's, there's maybe a more like to call it outward. Uh, would be, I think, incorrect, right? Because if everything is one thing, then the out is the in. But there's there's a goal of kind of doing that fine tuning, um, and then using that that setup as a tool to kind of really project out onto a different level of of the thing, right? Onto a different level of reality, um, in a way that I think creates a more bottom to top kind of trajectory but even if we just think about the chakras and how we move through the chakras right it's always this like the ascent model i think stays a lot more constant in um in the south asian yogic material that or you have completely dual traditions right where you leave the material world behind altogether i mean that's potentially um whereas i think the western harmonial stuff kind of kind of maintains this tension of the parts and the whole um, in a more insistent kind of way, right? There's there's maybe less of that theurgic ascent um, as we go through the centuries that um, that really is emphasized and more about, again, harmony, balance, um, right? This idea of like balancing your chakras as we, mm -hmm. as we would talk about in um, more of the 20th century New Age traditions. Yeah, and like even from the... Oh, sorry, I was just going to add, even from the contemporary... Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm also driving out of the contemporary sense, you know, the, the idea of that becoming a self-growth model and becoming self-improvement, especially in the American context, I think is something that also is leads into and, and, and comes from that history. No, thank you. Yeah, that's, I was going to just identify that there's a, a distinction that sort of stands out to me, especially that uh, emphasis you made there on your on, you know, leaving the world behind possibilities that the mm -hmm. yoga tradition has. There's always this because of the idea of, you know, the transcendent true self, the Atman that stands you know, beyond that's timeless. 
um, the possibility of going somewhere else. And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that quite exists in the same way, except in terms of death and you know, the afterlife in, in, in Western cosmology. Um, but there is this you know, model of self-improvement. And you say, even if there's nowhere else to go, there is this hierarchy of you know, improving the mental state, you know, one's physical capacity or even you know, spiritual alignment. Um, so all of that is is oriented towards some sort of trajectory of you know linearity, and yet in the Indian context, there's nothing like linear. It's all it's all cyclical until you leave the whole thing behind. So um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's it's funny that, that they're doing similar things in different ways in in, in that sense. Because in the Western world, you just you are caught up in it, and that's all there is to it. So there's a lot of emphasis on just having a better relationship with the energy that flows through us. Um, Whereas in an Indian context, it always seems to be mastering that to get somewhere, but then there's the only place to get is out. <laughs> so I see that coming back, though, towards the modern era. You have a really fascinating chunk of uh, quotations from four different sources about breath and uh, the way that's functioning in some of these you know, Western harmonial teachings um, and then presentations by Vivekananda and Paramahansa Yogananda um, when they're speaking to Americans. And, you know, mm -hmm. I was really struck by this first time I read Elizabeth de Michaelis, you know, attempting to explain who's talking about what, how much is Western, how much is, is Eastern. Um, I just wonder how much of that, you know, idea of prana being this thing that is somehow the explanatory <laughs> fluid um, that's animating mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. is actually coming from the early Upanishadic idea of prana and how much of that's really Western esotericism. I mean, you know, I think it's both. Um, and I think that when figures like Vivekananda and Yogananda, you know, they're sort of, yeah, maybe reinterpreting Prana in these new ways. Like we should take that seriously because um, there are obviously these analogies. There are these similarities. Um, it's not as though they're doing it just to like appeal to Western audiences, although some of it is, is that, right? To kind of make things more understandable um, and, and translate a little bit. I... I guess, I guess maybe the way that I find it more helpful to think about rather than sort of Upanishadic versus Western esoteric is almost more as like a triangle, right? So yeah, there's the Upanishadic stuff and there's the way that prana works in, in Indian traditions and in Ayurveda and Tantra and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's there's this Western half of it, right? The, the Western esoteric half where it's, yeah, it's Numa or it's Spiritus or whatever it is. Um, spirit as as both kind of a, a biomedical fluid, right, and then also something that's that's more transcendent, um, and so those two things sort of flowing together into the modern era, which isn't. I mean, it's not just sort of intercultural, right, and global. It's also just modern, uh, right? Like like mm -hmm. in India, um, we have this shift to a more biomedical, a more sort of anatomically grounded model as well. Um, mm -hmm. So I think when, again, yeah, when, when Yogananda, when Vivekananda are, are doing their reinterpretations of breath and what it is that breath done, does within the body, they're also sort of working with, you know, biomedical models that are, that are maybe common to some extent to both the Indian and the Western context. Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, to continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com.